to Philippians chapter 1. I feel that my heart has been redirected a little bit away from our regular series for a week to uh, turn to a very encouraging passage here in Philippians chapter 1. If you're with us here today and you don't have a Bible, we want you to have a Bible to read along with. There are men coming up the aisle right now. Just flag them down in some way and they'll, they'll pass a Bible uh, over to you. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with great joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. That passage that we've just read is going to outlive the physical heavens and the earth. Amazing. We get to build our lives upon it. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the sureness of it. Thank you for how it's been time-tested and life-tested, Lord, all through history, including by our lives as well. We thank you for the privilege of being able to build our lives and our eternities on the most sure thing in the world, and that is your word. And, Lord, we always want your Holy Spirit to be active in our lives as we turn to your word. We want to hear his amen, Lord, as we study it. And so we pray for that kind of personal corporate work of your Holy Spirit in this room, that we would hear your voice through your word today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The Lord used the Apostle Paul to establish the church in the ancient city of Philippi. And all of this, and he did it on his second missionary journey, and all of the great works and hardship and miracles and signs that were a part of the establishing of that church is recorded in the book of Acts and specifically chapter 16. This church at Philippi was a church that clearly had a very, very special place in the Apostle Paul's uh, heart. And it's reflected here and right at the beginning of his letter to them in verses 3 through 7. In verse 3, notice that he declared how every remembrance of them, every thought of them, just filled him with this sense of thanksgiving. I hope you have someone, at least one person in your life, where the every thought of them, whether they're still here with us on the earth or whether they've gone on to be in, to heaven, but where every thought of them fills you with an emotion of, of thankfulness. And that's the, that's the emotion that Paul felt toward that church. And then notice also that he wrote of what a joy it was in verse 4 to pray for them. It's effortless to pray for them. He was eager to pray for them. 
And then in both verse 5 and in verse 7, he just rejoiced in their long history together in Christian service, united together in the advancement of the gospel and the kingdom of God in the world. And in this letter, which he now writes 10 years after the establishing of the church, uh, here in verse 6, he reminded them of a great truth concerning the God that they had entrusted their lives to, that they had entrusted their eternity to, a truth that is applicable to every single Christian down through the ages, including into this room, where again in verse 6, he said, by the Spirit of God, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. God has begun a good work in each of our lives as Christians. But when God saved us, it was the start of something. Sometimes people think that when they commit their life to the Lord and they uh, pray the sinner's prayer, that that's kind of the beginning of it and that's the end of it. I mean, you get your fire insurance, uh, you make sure that when you die you won't end up in hell, and then you move on from that and do precisely what you want the rest of the life of your life, and then God doesn't bother us at all the rest of the way. And some people have that perception that getting saved is all that there is to Christianity. But when God saves us, it's just the beginning of a work that God is going to do in our lives and then through our lives. Someone has put it this way, that salvation includes a threefold work. The work God does for us, which is salvation. The work that God does in us, which is our sanctification, making us holy or making us like Christ. And then the work that He does through us, speaking of His uh, the Christian service that He calls us to. So He saves us, providing us with everlasting life, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on to clean up our lives and then to use us for his work in this world. I want you to notice that God describes each and every one of us as Christians. Even each and every one of us as his children, he describes us as work. And the word work there means an active work. It means to labor. It means something to be done. It speaks of a task. It speaks of an undertaking. In other words, when God, when each of us gave our lives to the Lord, God didn't get some great bargain. He didn't get some great asset. Where when you and I gave our lives to the Lord, He thought to Himself, finally, something I'm hardly going to break a sweat on. This guy is the kind of guy that makes it worth saving all of these other losers that I've just saved the rest of today. This is, I mean, this is why I'm God. This is why I'm in this salvation game is for people like, like this. It doesn't operate that way. It doesn't matter who he is saved. He gets a project. He just gets more work to do. He got something that when he looks at our lives, he realizes is going to require a lot of work. And that's true of every one of us. It doesn't matter what our accomplishments are in life. It doesn't matter what our history is in life. It doesn't matter what our title is in life. Nothing of, of, of this matters at all. He gets a, a 
project in saving each and every one of us. Now, thankfully, he loves projects. <laughs> he loves doing this in our lives. So God doesn't say, oh, no, here's another one, and, he just, and where he's, he's working in our lives, and to him it's some tedious, monotonous kind of job, like checking luggage at the airport. I don't know what... I, I'd be on disability mental disability in two weeks. God bless you if you can do that. That's great because you've got a sharpness. You're looking at something that... But I can only look at so much. I can only be in an airport for so long before I start to go crazy. But he doesn't look and say, oh, you know, this is some kind of a tedious thing that, that he's doing. He calls it a good work. And this work that he does in our lives is something that he enjoys. He doesn't regret it. You ever regret beginning a project? I have never started a plumbing project except that I came to regret having ever started it. That says more about me than it says about plumbing. I, I know now if I have a plumbing problem, I have to find someone that has some kind of aptitude to deal with this and the patience to deal with it as, as well. I would rather go off and work. When I was working for the phone company, I would work two or three Saturdays for the overtime to hire the right person to do this so it didn't leak 16 times as I tried to do it. It's good for my blood pressure. It was good for our marriage. It was good for our home. It was good for the economy. It gave work to somebody else. I wish I'd never gotten involved with that. God never feels that way about our lives. He loves His work, and He loves to change lives. And He knew He was getting a project when He saved us and made us a part of His family. He was not and is not surprised by anything that we are and by anything that He got in saving us. I am continually surprised. I surprise myself all of the time. It's kind of sad. But it's nice, and I think it's encouraging to realize that he knew everything about us and saved us anyway. He knew all the grease that he was going to get on his hands and whatever it was going to take to turn us into something and, and loves to do it and was never surprised by anything, any sin or any shortcoming or any however halting we are in, in growing in this Christian life. What God does in our lives is called a good work because that's the only kind of work God does. He can't do bad work. He can't do mediocre work. All He can do is good work. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible in this vein is in Psalm 73, verse 1, and it reads in the King James and in the New King James, it reads, Truly God is good to Israel. You say, well, that doesn't do anything for me. But it can be equally translated, only good is God to Israel, to His people. It's the only thing that He knows how to be. And it's the only thing He knows how to be in the lives of His people. I like it concerning Jesus. Again, one of my favorite verses concerning Him. When all, after all of the miracles and the teaching and the watching of his life and all the multitude that watched him declared concerning him, he does all things well. That's, all, that's the only thing he knows how to do, is what he does is to do it well. And what's that good work? 
that He's begun in us, the good work that He's begun in us is Christ-likeness, to conform us into the image of Christ. You cannot do a greater thing for any human being than to shape their thinking, their feeling, their processing of life, their emotions in life, their attitudes in life, their directions in life, their purposes in life. You can't do anything better for a person than to conform all of those things into the image of Christ, to make them like Christ. That is the greatest life that can be lived. It is the highest life that a person can live. And that's why God works in our lives to conform us every portion of our lives, bit by bit, day by day, into that Christ-likeness. Because it is to lead us into a life that is pure, a life that is holy, a life that is victorious and fruitful and peace-filled. Elsewhere, Paul wrote in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 8, and he said, And we know that all things work together for good. Those who love God and are the called according to His purposes, for whom He, that is God, foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. The Apostle John wrote in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He, that is Jesus, is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. That is a good work, to be conformed into the image of Christ. There is no greater thing to be desired in the entire human existence that a person can wish for or hope for or attain to than to be made more and more like Christ. Even in the Old Testament, David wrote under the veil of a limited revelation concerning Jesus, wrote in Psalm 17, verse 15 to God, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Notice, too, that God commits, will complete the work that He has begun in us. God always finishes what He starts. He always finishes what He starts. And that is a wonderful thing to know. You notice in verse 6, there's two great words there. Begin... And complete. When God begins something, He always completes it. There are some people in life, they are all begin, but they are no complete. They begin all manner of things and never complete a single project. These people drive me crazy. So I've offended everyone that works at an airport thus far, so we'll add the second group. To things. To me, until the final thing is done on a project, it lives in my mind. There's no stopping until it's done. But I'm just one kind of person in the world, and I'm glad that the world isn't exactly like me. 
kind of. I want someone like me working on the plumbing, though. Got to finish it. But there are some people, everything gets about halfway done or two-thirds of the way or three-quarters of the way or even 99% of the way, and they never, ever finish the project. God isn't like that. There's a lot of reasons that people don't finish what they start. Sometimes they can run out of money. Sometimes they'll run out of interest. Sometimes they discover that they don't have the expertise to finish the project that they've started. Sometimes something more pressing arises in their life that they've got to give their attention to. Or they get distracted and and want to go do something else. Or they get tired. But God never runs out of money. God never loses interest in His work in our lives. He never gets bored. He's never overwhelmed. He never looks. There's nobody that gets saved and God goes, "Uh uh-oh. Where's the manual on this? Saving human beings for dummies. He's never distracted. And he never gets tired. So God always completes what he begins. So he hasn't forgotten about you. He hasn't tucked you in a corner someplace and moved on to more important people or more important things. He hasn't lost interest, supreme interest, the highest interest in your life. I repeat, God always completes what he begins. Now further, God tells us in this verse that we are to live absolutely confident of this great fact that the work that he has begun in us, he'll be faithful to bring to completion. That word confident means to be fully convinced. It means to be fully persuaded. It means even to be absolutely certain. Now, you've got to ask yourself this this morning. Are you fully convinced, fully persuaded, absolutely certain that what God has begun in your life, that He's going to bring that to completion? And God declares in this verse, not only can we have that confidence, but we are to have that confidence. It's a confidence that He wants us to have in our Christian lives. God doesn't want us to be living I sure hope this is true about God in my life. He wants us to have this confidence. And we're not going to leave until you have it. We'll call Costco and have them bring all those freebies in the aisle right here to the church so we don't starve to death while it happens. God wants us to have this confidence in our lives. The reason that we can be confident in this is because the God that we serve is sovereign. And by that I mean He is almighty. The God that we have committed our lives to is not mostly mighty or half mighty. God is almighty. He's the only one that can have that term ascribed to Him in all all of the universe, in all of life. And this means that there isn't anything that's too hard for him. There isn't anything he cannot do and that he can't do absolutely effortlessly. 
It means that there isn't any circumstance that is beyond His control, beyond His ability to rule over and overrule every circumstance in our lives to make sure that it serves His purposes in our lives. Nothing is excluded from that. Nothing is outside of His almightiness. And so we can be confident when we know that. We can rest when we know that to be true about our God. How can I know that I am confident of this very thing, that what He has begun in my life, He's going to bring to completion? When I'm truly confident of this fact, it will characterize itself in my life by rest, by peace. That's how I'll know. I think that surrender, a surrender to God's will, is vital in all of this. So often we have a certain expectation of how we want our lives to go. That we're going to have a certain career path in life. That that career is going to translate into a certain income, which will then translate into a certain retirement. We have expectations concerning our lives that we're going to live in a certain part of the world, in a certain city, in a certain area within a city, in a certain kind of home within that city. We bring expectations that our Christian service is going to translate into a certain amount of fruit and evident fruit. We can have the expectation of marriage and the expectation of children and so forth. But what happens when the good plan that God has for our lives conflicts with our own plan for our lives, our own expectations? And that happens in every single human life. It's a reality. So what do we do when God's plan for our life comes up against and contradicts and conflicts with our own plan for our own lives. Well, one of two things are going to happen at that moment in time. If I'm determined to hold on to my own plans and my own expectations for my life at the expense of His, then inevitably it's going to lead into a life of worry. It's going to lead into a life of striving. It will lead to frustration, even with God. It can even lead into a life of anger toward life, even anger directed toward God. Because God will resist us. God will not let us, even us, be successful in hijacking our own lives from His will. He will step in and thwart our plans, even our own expectations and plans that would desire to take our lives away from what God has planned for them. God is very faithful to protect us from ending up being subjected to our own pathetic and pitiful plan for our lives. Well, the other option to all of that is to surrender. 
to surrender to God's will and God's plan and His purposes for my life. Where I take all of my expectations, all of my dreams, all of my hopes, all of my aspirations, and I bring them to Jesus' feet, and I say, Lord, this is what I would like to see happen. But if you have something better in mind for my life, I'm not going to fight you. You go ahead and do it. I'm along for the ride. That's called surrender. It's called submission and yielding to God. And it's important for us to realize that when we get that place to that place in life, and sometimes circumstances in life force us to make surrenders that we would never otherwise make to God. Life is a long series of fresh surrenders to the Lord in specific areas in our life. And when it happens, it's important for us to realize who it is that we are surrendering our lives to. We are surrendering our lives to a God who loves us so much we can't even begin to scratch the surface of understanding it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son to die on the cross for our sins that whosoever would believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting love. Who in all of Christian history, who in this room... Who, even if you add eternity to our lives, which God has done, we will always only scratch the surface of recognizing and comprehending the greatness of God's love that was demonstrated in the death of His Son upon the cross. And heaven won't bring any greater uh, conclusion to that. When we see Him in the fullness of the heavenly glory, we'll marvel even more that God was willing to send His Son from that place to this place out of His love to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. We can't even begin to comprehend the greatness of the love that this God that we're surrendering our lives to has for us. We're surrendering our lives to a God whose will is perfect and faultless. You can't say that about my will. I disappoint myself on a regular basis, and I suspect you're very much like me. When we surrender our lives and our will to Him in overall in concerning specific areas in our life, we are surrendering to a will that is absolutely perfect, to a wisdom that is perfect. Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 12, verse 2. And he said, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, perfect will of God. God's will is always, always perfect. Don't think about the situation that you find yourself in this morning as a Christian, not at this moment. Think back in your Christian life to those incidents where what God was doing was different from what you wanted Him to do in that particular situation. And you fought Him tooth and nail, 
We resisted him. We went through all kinds of worry and anxiety and what would happen and nothing could be better for my life than the plans that I could come up with. And God takes and brings us to a place of surrender in that particular area and then we give him enough time to then show us what he has in mind as opposed to what we had in mind for our own lives. And for those incidents when they occur within our lives and we're able to look back at them from the beginning to the moment that they finish, Without exception, we all look to God, lift up our hearts and praise to Him and say, Thank you, God, that you won in that situation. I thought nothing could be done that would be better than what I had worked out. But I could have never seen what you were up to in that situation and the beauty of what you've turned this into, especially as it's made me more like Christ. That's our testimony. Because his wisdom is perfect. He's so much smarter than us. I don't know why I fight it. One day I'll be glad to be in heaven and stop fighting it and having to relearn it. His wisdom is perfect for us. And we surrender to a God who is utterly for us. He is utterly on our side. Again, Romans chapter 8. And what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Then here it is. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him, on top of that expression of love, also freely give us all things? There is a wonderful supernatural peace that comes with a surrender to God's plans and purposes for our lives. The Apostle Paul possessed it when he wrote this letter. Paul is writing from a prison in Rome as he writes this letter. I don't know that Paul had any particular time in his early in his Christian life where he thought, you know what would be like the most fabulous mountaintop experience, God? Is if there was some kind of a way that you could get me into a Roman prison. (laughs) That was something that as these things came one after another in his life and recognized it from God's will, that surrender and the peace that he has as he writes this letter. And I have no doubt that Paul was encouraged as he's familiar with his, his Bible and the Old Testament saints. There weren't any kind of New Testament heroes at that point in time, too early in the New Testament for the most part. But he could look back on Joseph. He could look back on David. He could look back on Queen Esther. He could look back on Daniel. You could fill the list in for yourself. Each one of them faced very confusing days and nights and weeks and even years when it looked as if God's will was anything but good or acceptable or perfect, but it was and time bore it out. God was doing unbelievable things, but it took some time for all of it to be revealed and surrender in their lives gave God the time He desired and gave Him the time that He deserves for the fullness of what He's doing in our lives to be revealed. And the same thing is true about our lives. 
And all of this is to say nothing of the greatest example of surrender in all of the Bible. When our Savior is in that garden of Gethsemane, sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, facing the agony of the cross on the next day. Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And how good was the Father's will. We testify to it personally as Christians. It was a wonderful will. We're saved because of it. This church at Philippi was a very strong and healthy church, full of very strong and healthy Christians. And yet the Holy Spirit knew that even they needed to be reminded of the fact that God is doing a good work in each of our lives. And we are, we are to live absolutely confident that the good work that He's begun in us, He's going to be faithful to complete it. Now this morning, take that situation in your life right now that has you anxious and has you worried might even have you frustrated and even angry. That thorn in the flesh, that physical infirmity, that difficult marriage, that rebellious child, that ministry that God has called you to, that financial crisis, that loss of something material, the apparent dashing of some hope or some dream or aspiration in your life, whatever it might be this morning, and call out to the Lord and say, Lord, I surrender to your will for my life in this situation. And I trust you to rule over and overrule everything necessary in order for your purposes in my life to prevail. All I want in life is to have the peace of knowing that I am right with you and that I am in the middle of your will for my life, whatever that looks like. And then rest knowing that he that has begun a good work in you will be faithful to do that work all the way until we're safely delivered into the glory of heaven. When at that point, faith will give way to sight. The rest that comes with surrender will then characterize our hearts. God will never fail you. He is not failing you at the moment. He will never fail you in your life. You aren't just somebody in this world or anybody in this world. The God that you serve isn't just one of a dozen gods. The God that you serve is unique. And all of the heavens and the earth, he's the only true and the living God. You have a shepherd in this life 
that no one else but a Christian has in this life. And God takes the place that you have given him in your life very seriously. And he will never, ever fail you. This promise that God gives in this passage to the church at Philippi is a promise that is given to a church that is walking in simple obedience to God's Word. And I want to interject this for a moment because we're going to go into a few minutes of being able to just worship the Lord for a couple minutes to be able to meditate upon Him and whatever issue that we're dealing with in our lives. But if any of us sit here today and there is even one area of deliberate, willful disobedience in our life against God, then we cannot be confident in the way that God wants us to be confident. At least we'll be on the wrong side of His working, His ruling and overruling, and we don't want to be there. And so if you find yourself in that place today, then today is a day to just stop and to confess your sin to the Lord, to repent of it, to turn away from it, and rededicate your life to the Lord so that this promise can be an active promise in a good way, in a profitable way in your life. I want to take a few minutes this morning to give us a little bit of time. This is, don't head out the door. This is a part of the service. But just to take some time to surrender as needed in our lives. We can be our own worst enemies in terms of peace and boldness and confidence when our own expectations rise up against God and we're so unwilling to surrender them when it's clear God is moving in a different direction and in a different way. God is good. He is loving and He is wise. Any element of surrender that needs to occur as we just worship Him for a few minutes this morning, Let's allow the Holy Spirit to brood upon us this morning and then just to work in our lives in the way that He sees we need. So if the worship team would come out and lead us in worship.